Welcome, everybody, to The Building Code. I can't believe they brought us back. I'm Zach Kotovich. And I'm Charlie Bertwistle. We're here again somehow, episode number two uh, for us, episode 119 for The Building Code. We've got Bob Deeks, owner and president of RDC Fine Homes. We are covering net zero homes along some other topics, how to grow a business, how to get your customers engaged in builder trend, how to meet the environmental standards that are coming your way. Do you know anything about net zero? I know little to nothing about net zero. So very excited to talk to Bob. Hopefully Bob can fill us in a little bit. Let's Uh, get it. Let's get it. Bob, let's just start with RDC Fine Homes. Charlie and I were looking at your website. You build some beautiful homes out in British Columbia. And we want to know just before we get into the details of kind of how you led into net zero homes, tell us about yourself. How'd you get started? I saw your company started in 1993. You've been around, you've been around for a long long time. time. How did that happen? How did that happen? Uh, the story of so Bob. I never intended I never intended to go into construction. I hear uh, that a lot. I uh, you know I followed a pretty traditional education path. Uh, graduated from high school, went to university, got a commerce degree. Uh, thought I would end up in the business world. I grew up in Toronto, so started my uh, post-university career working in advertising, actually, and. Uh, I had reconnected with um, a colleague out here uh, in the ski school and being between jobs uh, and really being sick, I think, of sitting at a desk, staring at four walls. Right. Uh, feeling he, trapped, uh, just just looking for feeling, more. Feeling trapped. Yeah. <laughs> so I uh, jumped on a plane, came to Whistler, and I had just sold a house in Toronto, which I had renovated uh, with a good friend from high school, from from university. So I was sitting on a pile of money. Uh, and the market here seemed to be hugely depressed and land values were super low and uh, bought two vacant lots on the lake. Wow. Um, and all of a sudden was a landowner in Whistler, 4,500 kilometers away from where I really lived and really knew absolutely nothing about building houses. I um, designed a house, uh, literally contracted with a, a, a guy out of Ontario to do a traditional timber frame design, thought this would be fantastic. Never really considered that uh, financing might be a might be a challenge. Of course, this is um, the late 80s when the economy is not doing great. Interest rates were fairly high. Went to get financing, got turned down at the last minute. Like we were clearing the lot, uh, the timber frame guys scheduled uh, for Dang. delivery and we had no financing. So I had to cancel everything. Um, And then my partner and I really looked at the situation we were in uh, because we'd put all our money into the lot and uh, the taxes came due. Mm. And, uh, you know, even in those days, the taxes were, you know, thousands of dollars. And we were like, holy fuck, we we can't afford this. So we we put the lots up for sale, sold them both within a month, and we doubled our money. Oh, wow. uh, Because the economy was doing better. And you had owned those lots for how long? 12 months. Wow. Kind of worked out so, for you then. Uh, we, uh, I think we bought the two lots for about $120,000 and sold the two of them for two hundred and fifty. Wow. Uh, and then I looked around and bought a house in Whistler. So, you know, all of a sudden um, I was now a homeowner in Whistler and I, I did not have a job. And so the three jobs that were available in Whistler in the late 80s were either restaurants or bars uh, or construction. So uh, I sold myself as a carpenter and, uh, and bought some 
some hand tools. I bought myself a hammer and uh, a level and a saw and a bunch of other things. So other than the uh, renovation you had and you did in Toronto, did you have any experience or was this just a fake it till you make it type scenario? This was entirely fake it is <laughs> fake it till you make it. So I got a job forming concrete uh, and I had l- literally never, I had never formed concrete in my entire life. I showed up on this job site with my brand new tools. I had, I had gone and bought any, any builders listening to this will laugh. I had bought a 16 ounce finishing hammer because I literally did not know any better. So I showed up on a job site. I have my hammer. Form concrete <laughs> and I have my little 16 ounce with the curved claw uh, homeowner hammer. I got, I got, almost got laughed off the site this morning. I'm here to construct things. Yeah. yeah. I think within a week I'd gone and bought myself a 28 ounce East wing hammer that gave me tendonitis for the next five years. Overcorrected um, maybe? Overcorrected. Yeah. Got the biggest hammer I could find. And so that was my start. Like, uh, so, um, I got that, that, that sort of got my, my feet underneath me. I was a fairly quick study, um, figured out, uh, concrete forming and basic carpentry skills that summer. Um, did that for a few years. Uh, and then in the early nineties, when, you know, we had a fairly significant re- recession here, uh, there was just nobody hiring. And so I had a contact in the hotel industry who needed some maintenance work done and started working for them and spent the next two years um, renovating hotels. And by that point, uh, had no interest whatsoever in going back to work for anybody else and started RDC Fine Homes. And here we are today. So did it start primarily start as a renovation company then? Or did you move almost immediately into new home structures? Primarily just started, yeah, renovating hotels. I uh, grabbed a couple of friends who were also unemployed and had no construction experience. And the, the nice. sales pitch must have been amazing. Yeah. Hey, we're, we're just trying to make ends meet here. No, give us a shot. Required, yeah. Yeah. Give us a, well, just bring just a, a normal size hammer. Take it till you make it. Um, and we, I mean, we were, I mean, my core values today are positive, reliable performance. That's the core values for RDC. And I think, Love that. you know, going back to those early days, well, we never articulated core values. That's what I really believed in. And so we really worked hard to make sure we understood our customers' expectations and, we, we always doubled down on making sure that we did it right. Um, and so, you know, as we went out into the marketplace um, later in the 90s and into the 2000s, that has served us extremely well. For sure. So kind of shifting away from you and more into RDC, um, obviously humble beginnings. Uh, but since then, you guys have become pretty prominent home builders um, up in British Columbia, multiple Georgie Awards I saw. Um, I'd love to talk about just kind of the transition that RDC has made. Uh, specifically, you guys are in the news a lot now for the, the net zero transmission housing and all the work you're doing um, from a sustainability side of things. Uh, can you kind of walk us through that transition from the humble beginnings to the you know kind of enterprise you guys are now? We, you know, in the late 90s, uh, I had an opportunity to um, build uh, a new luxury home uh, on a site that had uh, an older home on it. And that older home had fairly recently been renovated. It hadn't been renovated very well, but uh, it was a fairly significant addition. And when I went in and looked at it, uh, you know, the, 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 the primary way that you would have developed that lot in those days is you brought a machine in and you just crunched the whole thing up and threw it all in the landfill. Um, and as I walked around this house, you know, all the framing lumber was less than 10 years old. The windows were less than 10 years old. There was flooring, there was, 
you know, all kinds of good materials there. And right. I, you know, I really looked at this and thought, this is, this, we should, we should not be landfilling this, you know, this is perfectly yeah. good material. And then the, the sort of financial side of my brain also recognized that there was a fairly significant cost to tear it down and throw it into landfill, but that there might be value in the materials that were on site. So I was actually able to, um, connect with a guy who uh, agreed to come in and dismantle the house at no cost in return for all the materials. And so oh. um, we, we essentially repurposed um, the vast majority of that building. And it really, I think it opened my eyes uh, in the late nineties to, you know, there's a better way to do construction. Um, and it started with, you know, just a more sustainable way uh, of demolition. Um, and it really then turned my attention to, you know, is there a better way to build? Um, I was always looking for, you know, what is what is the latest technology? What is a better way to do this? So we were doing heat recovery ventilators uh, a long time before uh, they became commonplace up here. Uh, we became knowledgeable of the building science and air tightness uh, in the early 2000s. Uh, initially um, starting to use uh, spray foam, which was a very, very new uh, strategy for insulation in those days, specifically because we were looking for um, better moisture control, uh, particularly in some of the roof assemblies we were building with a lot of valleys and recognizing that there were some problems inventing those types of roofs. And so spray foam became a great strategy for non-vented roof applications. Um, of course, the heat recovery ventilators, HRVs, uh, became, you know, we, we became very, um, aware of the consequences of indoor air quality and moisture control and just, you know, how to build a healthier, better house. And, and you were um, doing this in the early 2000s and late 90s. Yeah. How, how common was it back then for builders to be doing that? I can't imagine that this is something that a lot of contractors were really considering. Oh, I'd say, you know, far less than 1% wow. of the industry was involved in this. Um, and then uh, as we headed into the early 2000s and I really started to understand um, that there was a, a you know, huge education gap uh, in the industry around what we did. It's one thing to you know, frame a wall and, and stand them up and throw a roof on. It was an entirely different animal to really understand the building science and you know, how moisture moved through wall assemblies, how you managed indoor air humidity, indoor air quality. And so uh, we made a huge commitment to our, you know, just not only to myself, but to the entire team to make sure that we spent a lot of time and effort on educating our team around building science. And as everybody became more knowledgeable about it, um, we became more and more interested in the performance of houses. You know, how can we make our houses more energy efficient? How can we make them more comfortable? You know, is the dawning realization that energy efficiency and thermal comfort and indoor air quality all went hand in hand. And the strategies that you used for each one of them were complementary to the other. Um, and also that if you screwed it up, you, there were serious consequences um, to that indoor environment, both from a health and safety standpoint, but also from a durability of the buildings. Um, and so uh, around 2005, uh, I started looking around to see what sort of certifications were available to bring um, some extra accountability and due diligence to the process. Uh, and um, we discovered the Build Green standard. Um, and so in 2006, we built our first Built, built Green certified project. And that's where um, air tightness testing um, started to become 
uh, a factor in what we we built and really sort of understanding that if we didn't test, we really had no idea of how we were doing. And um, what's really commonplace here, because air tightness has now become mandatory within the BC building code in certain regions, um, as it has in other places in the United States, uh, you know, we all think we're building airtight houses until we test them. Right. Um, and so, you know, for us, we really started to understand if we don't test it, then we actually don't know. And while, you know, I had a team that really understood the detailing for air tightness, uh, there were times where uh, we would bring the blower test in mid-construction and the guys would, would hit it right on. Uh, they'd, they'd hit the mark. And then there were other times where, you know, something would come out of left field and, and we would fail miserably. Uh, and we would discover as a result of that mid-construction blower test that, you know, some fairly significant things that weren't obvious had been missed. And so, um, you know, that, that, that really uh, reinforced uh, how important certification was for us uh, and how important testing was uh, to make sure that we were consistent in the delivery of that better built high performance house. Uh, and so as an extension of that, um, as net zero, as I started to become more knowledgeable about what net zero was and what was required, um, I thought that was just the logical extension of where we had started our journey. Uh, and so we had the first uh, uh, labeled net zero house in BC in 2010, and we used it as a demonstration project during the Olympics that were here. Uh, so we toured a wow. thousand oh, people through amazing. it. And um, uh, as a result of you know the construction of that and the promotion that we got, we actually started to get some clients, some of whom were interested right. in net zero, but it really put us on the map uh, in terms of being an expert for high performance, sustainable, Right. energy efficient construction and um, then and so there's your advertising background you're showing off your houses in the olympics i mean talk about yeah. advertising gold right there that's right uh, and so you know we've really been building on that and um and becoming you know better and better at, at the strategies around how you build high performance houses and today i think every new house uh that we're building meets the labeling standard for either net zero or net zero ready wow uh, we completed the first net zero renovation in British Columbia last year. Uh, we're partway through construction of our second net zero reno, and this one will have solar panels on the roof. The first one was a net zero ready, which means that the house was modeled to be able to produce as much energy as it used. Um, the one we're doing right now, um, the owner is committed to doing the solar panels. Um, so we've got a 16 kilowatt uh, a photovoltaic array that's designed into the structure uh, and next summer um, that'll go into place and so we'll have that'll be our third project over the last 10 years that uh, not only is net zero uh, modeled but we'll have the solar panels on the roof so, so as you guys are kind of like trailblazing the path here um, you know the first in British Columbia you know you're building all these things even back in the early 2000s you said you were educating your team on building science what sort of like tools and re like what were you doing to to find that education and educate yourself and your team and kind of break through this barrier of you know the traditional way of doing things because I'm sure a lot of builders listening to this right now you know would love to get into that space but maybe don't know where to start so do you have any kind of like uh, advice or or resources that you used early on to you know educate yourself on building science and and set yourself down this path? Yeah, it's it's a great question. So. Uh, in the early 2000s, uh, I got invited to join the Canadian Home Builders Association. Um, wasn't really too sure where that was going to go, but I, you know, I did 
I was smart enough to understand that there was going to be value, particularly we live in a very small community that is somewhat isolated from the mainstream construction and becoming part of the home builders would connect me to, you know, a broader group of my peers that I could learn from. And one of the first things um, that I discovered was they had a really good suite of education opportunities, one of which was building science. And so I, I went and took the building science course. That's something that I'm really curious about. You're taking an initiative to educate your team. And that's something I know working with builders is hard to do. And, you know, you went and took the building science course. How did you bring it back to your 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 team and your field crew and your engineers? And, and what was that reception like? Well, I think, uh, you know, I we were collecting a staff that were also interested and passionate about building better. Mm-hmm. And so I had an engaged team and we just, you know, I don't think we told people your job depends on you um, taking continuing education. Uh but we certainly set a standard that we expect that you take the education um, that we're offering you uh, and RDC paid for it. So uh, in the early days, we paid out of pocket um, for education. We gave people essentially an education budget. Um, although we don't do it today, there was a time where we tracked everybody's education and we awarded, mm. awarded people for the most points. Incentivized them a little bit. Right. Yeah, so I love incentive. that. Uh, and we really made it a standard that if you were going to be a senior leader uh, on an RDC construction site, whether you were a project manager, a site superintendent, or a lead hand carpenter, we expected you to, at a minimum, take the, the building science course right. uh, and uh, really understand you know, simple things like what's the difference between an air barrier and a vapor barrier? Um, you know, what is the importance of a blower tower test? How do you do it? What does an HRV do for a house? Um, and so it, we've continued that journey. Of course, in British Columbia, we're really lucky that the government is supporting education uh, for skilled trades. And so we can get about 60% um, recovery on any approved education. And we spend, oh, wow. you know, we spend upwards of about $20,000 a year uh, on education. Of course, that's only uh, 40% of the cost. So we're leveraging you know, close to $50,000 yeah. um, of education opportunities for our teams. Yeah, it is. And, you know, I, I go, my risk is not managed if my team doesn't know what they're doing. Right. Right. That makes a lot of sense. What do you say to the builder who's skeptical about net zero homes? And uh, I can't do that or it's not realistic or it's too expensive or all the things we're going to get into as far as the characteristics of the home. Or even just like you said, the class is too confusing, like the education yeah. is too hard. The only thing that's consistent I think in society today is change. Like there's there nothing stays no the same, and the industry is changing around us incredibly quickly. Uh, when I started this journey, nobody told me I had to do this, so we were a little bit proactive. But today, the building codes are going to mandate net zero housing, and so if you want to stay in business, you have no choice as a starting point. It's intimidate. It's absolutely learning something new and learning something technical is intimidating. Um, but it's not as difficult as you think. You know, the old sort of somewhat worn out adage is how do you eat an elephant? You eat it one bite at a time. Right. And so you got to start dipping your toe in the water and get some education um, because there's an enormous amount of education opportunities out there, whether it's uh, in COVID land, it's uh, online. Um, and sometimes you need to revisit things a few times so it really sinks in. Uh, and building net zero 
in a large number of the climate zones in North America is not that hard. Uh, and we can talk a little bit about, you know, what are RDC's strategies uh, to cost effectively achieve a net zero standard. Of course, you know, we're building in a relatively cold climate in Whistler. Um, and as we move north in Canada, and if you look at the northwest um, of the United States, you get some very, very cold climate. And it, it absolutely it gets more expensive and gets more complicated the colder the climate. Um, you know, in a, in a climate like Southern California, building to net zero is really quite simple. Yeah, and I love the kind of what you're hinting at there, like strategies they can use to be cost effective. What would you say are some of like the biggest lessons you've learned? Obviously, someone like you has been doing this for a long time versus someone that's just kind of like starting out. Um, what were some of the realizations you had uh, to kind of get to where you are now and, and probably still continuing to learn lessons, you know, to this day? So our, our two first, the two first strategies that we use when we start modeling uh, are windows and air tightness. So we... Uh, we go out to the marketplace uh, and buy the very best windows we can. Uh, and what I explain to clients is the, the first place we're going to make an investment is windows because it is your lowest cost uh, opportunity for improving not only the energy efficiency of your house, but the thermal performance in terms of is it warm enough in winter or is it evenly warm in every room? Um, is it easy to keep it cool in the summertime? Uh, and um, you know, it's also interestingly uh, the easiest way for soundproofing a house, particularly in a busy urban environment. So, you know, look for, uh, we don't necessarily promote passive house, uh, but we use passive house windows because passive house took it um, to the window industry and created a standard. Uh, and so passive house rated windows uh, are going to be the highest performing windows that you can buy. And, um, you don't have to go to Europe to buy passive house windows. Certainly in the lower mainland of British Columbia, I think we have four manufacturers that all have passive house rated windows oh, wow. and we do try to buy local. So uh, triple pane, high performance windows, uh, that's our first um, box that we check. And then the second one is air tightness. And so I would encourage anybody who's looking to get into this space, whether it's um, improving the overall thermal comfort, uh, durability, and energy efficiency of your house is really look at a good air tightness strategy. And there's all kinds of different ways to achieve air tightness. Um, we typically are now modeling our projects down below 150 pascals. Um, and that if you have, can find a good strategy for um, cost effective air tightness ceiling, that is your lowest cost pathway to high performance buildings. We use uh, aero barrier. Um, is our strategy. We've tried just about every other option. Um, so we, we do have a wall and roof assembly strategy that we generally follow for all our projects. Uh, and then we use aero barrier uh, to get uh, our air tightness numbers um, as per our model. And we like that strategy because it brings uh, it, you know, it's risk free, um, relatively low cost, a way to drive certainty to the number that we need to meet the target in our model. Well, you know, let's take this down to your customers a little bit. Are, are you seeing an increase in people looking for net zero homes in your area or in the industry? Or is this still a relatively niche market? We're starting to see uh, both. Um, there's, there's increasing interest, but the building code 
like our building code, both nationally and provincially, uh, has a target for net zero uh, ready homes by 2032. Where we're consistently building here, uh, in some cases, uh, the local municipalities um, are requiring construction to meet uh, an energy level that's just one step below net zero ready. Um, and as I think that was introduced in some places in the United States and California, uh, we have a, a step code here, uh, which is a pathway to net zero. Um, it's a voluntary uh, uh, building code pathway to energy efficiency that was made available to municipalities in British Columbia uh, to allow municipalities to start educating and building capacity uh, in the industry for better built houses. Um, in January of 2022, the um, provincial building code will move to what is referred to as step three uh, of the BC energy step code. And so that's two steps away um, from net zero ready. Uh, uh, in 2027, they'll move uh, the provincial code to uh, step four. And then in 2032, it'll move to step five, which is that net zero ready standard. And uh, the national code is essentially following along in, in a similar pathway. So. Um, by the you know mid 2030s, uh, the building code for both uh, big buildings and small buildings, houses and commercial buildings, will be net zero ready. And I think there's lots of places in the United States that are following a similar pathway. Um, and so you know it's twofold. One, we have consumers who are much more interested in this um, uh, as an, uh, an incentive, uh, an initiative to reach our, our climate goals, um, but also governments are mandating this. I love that. Yeah. The pathway and, you know, stepping people one step at a time to get to that eventually net zero ready mm -hmm. um, endpoint yeah. where you guys are. That seems like a, a really, really smart play there. Um, as people are kind of transitioning towards that, um, what kind of insights or benefits do you normally use if you're trying to convince someone to go down this pathway of promoting net zero homes other than it's going to be mandated? Um, you have to do this. Yeah. What, yeah. what, what are, what are the love, benefits? People love to be told that yeah. this, is, this yeah. is being forced upon you. As so people, that's one of the things yeah. I've, I, I've certainly learned in my spiel is uh, there's no value in telling my customers what they have to do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, although I have been, uh, I have been known to do that. Um, Bob, so I can the, tell the you're way, very passionate about it though. I think they should know it's from a, a good place. You care about them. So it's important for them to know this is, this is the, the expectation that I'm being held to, therefore, I'm doing what's best for the customer. Right. Yeah, we're we're you know we're trying to do the best for you as the customer. But I, I figured out a long time ago that uh, it was really hard to sell energy efficiency. To say you should spend all this extra money uh, on energy efficiency because you're going to actually get it back in some short period of time. But as I talked about earlier on, the energy efficiency strategies are directly tied to that better built home that has better indoor air quality, uh, it's um, thermally more comfortable. You know, you go from room to room, it's the same temperature throughout the house. Uh, the house is more durable because we're managing moisture in a more effective way. Uh, we're building better building envelopes, one, because um, we need to manage uh, the durability of the envelope, but we also need to manage the air tightness. And so we've always sold energy efficiency uh, on the basis of this is just a better a better built house. You know, my analogy sometimes is towards cars because in various parts of North America, you can have a builder build you a house that really would be built to a similar standard as a 1980s car. 
and and do you do you really want to go and drive a brand new car off uh, a dealer lot that is reflective of technology from 1980 right um, or do you want to go to that dealer lot and drive a car off that is reflective of the 21st century it's got blue technology. And, yeah, and, gotta have yeah. Seated seats. and and when you look at the you know in real dollar terms um there are cars that you can buy today that probably are cheaper in real dollar terms to what was being produced in 1980 you know it's interesting when you look at the car analogy because everybody wants to know what's my payback yeah but people will will drive you know that whether you you drive a car off a lot that's $35,000 or $150,000, you know, most of those cars, the moment you drive them off the lot, Decreases the value has been cut value. in half, yep. right? right? So you need to learn how to sell your houses like they sell cars because that energy efficient house brings across all kinds of additional benefits to the family. You know, particularly when you talk about indoor air quality as a result of having a heat recovery ventilator. Um, and, and particularly in today's world, when we're you know really worried about virus transmission and all those other things, good filtration, um, you know, properly right-sized mechanical systems, which will evenly heat and cool your house, reduce your energy use, um, be more durable, uh, and just be that much more thermally comfort, comfortable day in day out. So those are the tools that you can use to sell that. And interestingly, today the one thing we haven't talked about is carbon, mm-hmm. um, but of course. The end goal of energy efficiency is to reduce carbon emissions. But what we're now really understanding is what really impacts carbon is the embodied carbon in construction. And so that's my new conversation and will become sort of our new niche as we move forward with energy efficiency becoming mandated by building code. We're sort of losing our brand identity there because everybody, whether they want to or not, is going to catch You're gonna up. you match the rest of the market. You've just been ahead of it. you got to find the next yeah. thing. And so embodied carbon you know, whether there's a lot of discussions around carbon emissions, but what we're learning now is that the embodied carbon in construction far, far outstrips um, the emissions from operation. Uh, and then, of course, that, you know, that your fuel fuel choice has an enormous impact on emissions, too. So that that's our new conversation with our clients. Um, and you'll start to see uh, on our social media channels. I'm going to start to talk a lot more uh, about the impacts of carbon. We have a new tool that we're using uh, to measure embodied carbon. So we're just in the process of uh, going back through some of our previous projects to understand you know, how much embodied carbon was in there. Uh, we're gonna look to change some of the materials we're using um, in construction next year. Uh, I think, while I haven't put it in paper, uh, our goal, maybe not for 2022, but for 2023 will certainly be uh, a, net, a net zero carbon building uh, because there are lots of materials that are available today that if you put enough of them in the house, uh, the carbon capture of those types of materials would, you know, one is the most obvious, will exceed the embodied carbon and things like concrete. And so, you know, get your building down to a place where you've actually stored more carbon than you've admitted in construction. And I think that that's going to be the end goal. Uh, while the industry doesn't know it, um, and we haven't got our head wrapped around it. The first step is going to be net zero construction, but the next is going to be net zero carbon. You heard it here first. Folks. Love that. Um, you know, I'm glad you brought up tools and things that have helped improve your business. And that kind of brings us to builder trend and, and how you came to us when you were growing your company and looking to set yourself apart in the market, what role did technology on that side play? 
Yeah, it's an interesting question because, uh, you know, in early days, I was super frustrated with things like timesheets uh, and the mistakes that were getting made. And um, so one of the first things I really started looking for was uh, um, a, a better way to, to track and manage time. And you know, we've always been very transparent with our clients. We want to show them, you know, where they're spending their money. And part of what was important to me, uh, because so much of the cost of construction is the wages that are paid to the carpenters. Um, and it's expensive. And, and so being able to provide clients with a detailed explanation of, you know, where did the guys spend their time? What did they do? Uh, how much time did they spend on those individual tasks was important. And I'm, I'm actually shocked today to find, you know, particularly subtrades who are still doing and small contractors who are still doing all their payroll manually. I've um, seen it so, dozens of times in my own experience yeah. traveling and, and working with businesses. A lot of things are written on paper that they hand in and then they're manually entering it. And I mean, even their invoicing systems are that rudimentary yeah. when it comes down and, to and, it. And business owners that are staying up to midnight. Yeah. Yeah. You know, five days a week to try and keep up with this. Like, you know, that, they that's something be. I do. We just take it. We, we just taking it for granted. Yeah. So this is how I you know, should we, be doing it. It's like, no, there, there's something else you could be doing. There's a better way. way. You know, they're thinking it. We were looking for um, a better platform that was had, a, had a, a more friendly interface, both for staff, but we were also really looking for something that we could engage our clients with. Right. We deal with a lot of clients who don't live here, um, and uh, construction is expensive. It creates an enormous amount of anxiety, and uh, you know, if, if we can connect our clients meaningfully day to day on what's going on in their job site, it manages their anxiety. Um, and if it manages their anxiety, they are happier, uh, and they're much easier to deal with. You know, a happy client is an easy client to deal with. Um, one of the huge selling features was the, uh, the support, um, that was there. Somebody that you could pick up the phone and ask a question. Um, there was no charge for it. So, you know, the guys, you know, are encouraged to use that whenever they do. Um, and, and very supportive help, you know, nobody sort of. There's no stupid questions. Uh, and I think uh, the scheduling tool uh, and uh, the daily log for our clients have proven to be enormously um, valuable tools. I, I have a client right now in Hong Kong. Uh, we're doing a very large, complex project for him under a very, very short uh, timeline. We started in January. Um, his entire They've, they've been stuck in Hong Kong, haven't been able to travel now for over 12 months. Um, and he shared with me uh, a week ago, he said, you know, when I did my house in Dublin, I had to make six trips um, from Hong Kong to Dublin uh, to make sure that my project was progressing. Uh, and neighbors would call me and tell me there was nobody on site uh, or the builder wasn't communicating very well. And um, he said there was an enormous, you can't imagine how much anxiety it created from my wife oh, and I. Yeah. Um, through that process, he said, uh, you know, the ability to log in every morning, um, read the daily log update to see what the guys did, um, to look at the photographs and see the progression of the photographs, um, go on to the scheduling tool and double check that, you know, what, what they say is going on on site is matched on the schedule that they're showing me. He said, we have no anxiety. You know, he said, I, I, you know, while I can't travel today, because the travel restrictions, he said, I feel no need to make a trip to come out and make sure that you guys are doing what you said you were going to do. Um, we feel so secure and there's so much trust. And 
uh, I'd say that, you know, the team is doing a good job, but sometimes it's hard to demonstrate, you know, what you're doing and builder trend uh, helps us uh, enormously in making sure the client understands that we're doing what we said we were going to do. I think that's huge. And I hear that all the time talking to our customers as far as with getting their homeowners involved, they're hesitant. They're a little nervous. They're afraid they might show something that they shouldn't in the program or do something they shouldn't be doing. And my message to them, and Bob, I would invite you to speak on this, is the benefits that you gain far outweigh the potential of any sort of mistake you might make initially while you're learning the program or getting involved with it. You know, the worst thing you can ever do is assume that you can hide your mistakes from your clients because you can hide some things, but if you continue to hide stuff, eventually uh, it's going to trip you up and that'll undermine the trust you have with your client right. in a heartbeat, right? So if you, if you own up to small mistakes and they're, you're transparent about small mistakes and you're like, yeah, the boys made a mistake. They had to redo that. I'm not going to charge you for it. You can see the mistake was made. I'm going to show you the credit on your invoice. You know, you can turn a negative into a positive very, very quickly. Um, and those mistakes are very, very strong learning moments for your team. Like they will, if they, they won't make that mistake again. But if you bury those mistakes, then you know, you're essentially you're teaching your team that it's okay to make mistakes because there's no consequences. Right. So. Well, Bob, I think we could talk all day, and we've put you through the ringer here. We really appreciate your time. Thanks <laughs> yeah. for joining uh, us. We've covered, anytime. We've covered yeah. all types of things, going from advertising to building net zero homes and uh, how to get your team to buy in. Yeah, incredibly valuable stuff, Bob. Really, really appreciate your time. And I was going to say, we can link uh, link all your socials in the show notes as well, too. So anybody listening out there can follow follow along. And as you begin to you know present on some of these things that RDC is doing, uh, it seems like a great educational resources for anybody listening. Yeah, and so you know we've got uh, you know our YouTube channel. We do regular posts on our projects there, and then you know our Facebook and Instagram uh, has all those videos that we really use as an education tool, uh, just to demonstrate what we're doing and and help the industry understand what some of those simple strategies are. And then of course it's a great promotional tool for us for um, well-aligned clients who are thinking about the same things. All right, signing out. This is Zach Matovich. Okay. Charlie Burtwistle. Appreciate it. This is the building code. Cheers, guys.